Please stand for the reading of God's word. The scripture today is from the book of Jonah, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, it is not this what I said when I yet in my country, that it is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do, you do well to be angry? Jonah went, to, went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and it made it come up over Jonah. Then it might be a shade over uh, his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it would wither. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And then he asked that he, then he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is God's word. Amen. If you have your <clears throat> Bibles, I hope that you'll keep them open to Jonah chapter 1, as we get started this morning. Uh, let's pray together. <clears throat> God, as we open this final chapter in the book of Jonah this morning, we pray that you would give us eyes to see you and ears to hear your voice. Open our hearts to receive the truths that are presented to us in this passage. Soften our hearts so that we will receive them with grace and look to you for mercy. We are hopeful this morning because of the love poured out for us by your Son, and it's in his name that we come before you with hope and joy and expectation. Amen. <clears throat> in most of our favorite stories, a climactic moment comes when the hero confronts the villain and delivers the final decisive strike to bring justice and defeat. It's the moment when Darth Vader defeats the Emperor, when Harry Potter finally vanquishes Voldemort, when Sherlock Holmes defeats his arch-nemesis, the evil Professor Moriarty. There are clips on YouTube of audience reactions to the moment when the Avengers defeated Thanos, the diabolical alien who wanted to eradicate half of all life in the universe. In those clips, when the moment of his downfall finally arrives, 
The people in those movie theaters literally clap their hands and cheer and lose their minds. They're so happy for this moment to have finally arrived. There are moments that audiences and readers eagerly anticipate because we've seen the evil and the terror that these villains unleash, and we, along with all of the characters and heroes in these stories, want justice. It's part of what it means to be made in God's image, a desire for justice and righteousness to ultimately prevail. And so, it's something that we long for and that we bristle against situations where injustice seems to go unanswered. It conflicts with something that's written deep in every human heart. Even if in sin we have a tarnished vision of what justice truly is, the fingerprints of God are still on us, causing us to look for justice, to long for it, to strive to bring it about, and to feel sorrow and anger when it does not come. This is what Jonah is feeling as we turn to this final chapter of the biblical book named after him. When we first met him, he was a prophet living in Israel. But a day came, as we know, when God called him beyond the borders of his nation to go to a place called Nineveh, a majorly important city in the Assyrian Empire, on a mission there to warn people of God's impending answer to their astounding wickedness. But Jonah, as we saw a few weeks ago, ran in the other direction, He boarded a ship and tried to get as far away from Nineveh as possible. But God had other plans. He pursued Jonah, not to destroy him, but to give him another chance. So Jonah finally came to the massive city, proclaiming that God's justice would come in 40 days. Rather than laughing at this foreign doomsday prophet, or worse, the people of the city of Nineveh listened to him begin to fear God. Everyone in the city evidently responds in humility, turning from evil and casting themselves on the mercy of God. And in the last verse of the chapter that we looked at last week, chapter 3, God relents of the judgment that he had said that he would send to the city of Nineveh. He withholds his wrath and the city is spared destruction. And afterward, here in chapter 4, we finally get an answer to the question of why Jonah ran in the first place. It is not because he feared Nineveh. It isn't because he thought that they would kill him when he arrived. He says, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah didn't run because he was afraid of the Ninevites or their violent tactics. He didn't run because he thought they were too far gone to turn from sin. He ran because he feared that they would and that God would be compassionate toward them. That these people that he hated would be shown mercy. The outcome that surprises readers when we read the book of Jonah, that the whole city of Nineveh turned toward God in humility and that God would relent of their destruction, that result did not surprise Jonah. It's exactly what he feared would happen, that they wouldn't be punished, that they wouldn't be destroyed, that injustice and wickedness would go unanswered. And so we read in the very first verse of this final chapter that it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. 
And this is the moment that reveals what this book is all about. The main focus of the book of Jonah is not about the conversion of the city of Nineveh, as amazing as that is. The main focus of this book is the problem in Jonah's heart and God's compassion toward him. The conversion of the city of Nineveh is given little space in the book. The author treats it almost as an aside. Jonah and his sin are center stage. It drives him to run in chapter 1. It requires him to repent in chapter 2 and to obey reluctantly in chapter 3. And now in chapter 4 to feel righteous indignation over what God has done. And we see that the thing that God intends to do in this book, with this book, is to show how he graciously deals with this man, Jonah. First, by bringing Jonah's hidden sin to light. It's a painful process, as we've seen in these four chapters, but a necessary one. Here in these first few verses, we see clearly that Jonah's real issue, his real problem, is with God himself. His anger is directed not at Nineveh, but at God. I knew that you were a gracious God, he says. He uses the language that God has used to describe himself elsewhere in the Bible, but now as an insult, as an accusation. I knew it, he says. I knew this would happen. I knew that you would let them off the hook. This is the real problem. He does not approve of how gracious God is. That's why he ran. And it is more than an irritation to him. When we read that God's mercy toward the Ninevites displeased Jonah exceedingly, our English translations of that verse are cutting Jonah some slack. The Hebrew word here is evil, which is noted in a a footnote in many of our Bibles. What God has done in Nineveh by sparing this city is evil in Jonah's eyes. From where he stands, God has allowed the wicked to prevail and to escape judgment. And now Jonah stands openly defiant and opposed to God. And the hidden sinful rebellion against the heart and holiness of God is exposed at last. He hated that God had not come in unrelenting fury against his enemies. And he accuses God of doing evil by refusing to answer Nineveh with justice. Now the illusion from Jonah's past life that everything is okay is shattered, and Jonah sees clearly just how far from God he really is. It's a moment that echoes his own ministry in the city of Nineveh. He came to that city to proclaim that all of these people are guilty before God and that judgment is coming. And that wake-up call, the frightening realization that all is not well and that judgment is coming and that Someone is standing in opposition to God is what initiated a change in that city. And now God is doing the same thing with Jonah, who is enraged that God will do what he has done. The sin that was buried in Jonah's heart, God has brought to the surface by calling Jonah to this work. It's a painful process. It was for Jonah... And it it was for the people of Nineveh as well, a frightening one, surely, as we saw last week. And it is a painful process when he does it in our lives too. He confronts people with the hard truth that we are further from him than we knew, 
more lost than we knew and more captive to sin than we knew. But Jonah, as we see in this passage, has a harder heart than the people of Nineveh did. He doesn't humble himself like they did. He doesn't repent like they did. He is proud, and he doubles down by telling God that he is wrong for being compassionate toward Nineveh. He tells God twice in this passage that he would rather die than live in a world where God is merciful toward the city of Nineveh. Maybe we have felt that impulse before. In the face of some injustice or evil or heartbreaking circumstance that we have encountered up close, we wonder why, would, why God would have allowed such a thing. And perhaps we even doubt whether He is as good or as loving as He claims to be. Perhaps we have felt like Jonah feels now, saying, God failed to stop some injustice. He failed to do what was right. It's a common accusation in the world. Since we live in a world full of suffering and full of injustice, and the sort of thing that Jonah hated Nineveh for, we live in a world full of it. For many people, the amount of suffering in the world is exactly the reason why they say that they cannot believe in the God of the Bible. When we encounter that suffering, that pain, that evil or wickedness ourselves, we may feel like Jonah felt on that hillside outside the city that God had said that he would judge. There are moments in our lives that will push us to that point. And I think the book of Jonah is here to prepare us for them. When anger toward God is not hidden anymore, when it is on the surface. That's where Jonah is right now. And for him, it's a step in the right direction. Because now that all of his cards are on the table, God can deal with the problem. The problem that has been hidden up to this moment, which we see him do in this passage. Despite Jonah's many issues and his pride, God confronts his sin with patience. As we've said already during our study of this book, God would have been justified in responding in anger toward Jonah. He would have been justified in choosing someone else for this mission and letting Jonah run headlong into his own destruction, but he doesn't do that. We shouldn't misunderstand, he's not ignoring Jonah's sin or making light of the seriousness of his rebellion, but rather than answering it with swift retribution, he is patient and compassionate toward this wayward prophet, just as he is with the people of Nineveh. We see that in one of this book's several uses of clever wordplay, that can be easy to miss in English how that is true. We read in verse 1, of this chapter that Jonah is angry. And then in verse 4, God asks him, do you do right to be angry? But the same word is also used to describe, the same word for angry in Hebrew is also used to describe something that is hot. The semantic relationship there makes sense to us. We can easily see how anger and heat can be related concepts. But knowing that, seeing that, in this passage, can help us understand something about God's heart toward Jonah and how he chooses to address Jonah's anger in this passage. A Hebrew reader would see this immediately. Jonah was hot with anger over Nineveh, so God uses the heat of the desert to bring him to his senses. In fact, I'm not just guessing at this, I think it's clear in the passage, the word for scorching that's used in this chapter in verse 8, the scorching wind that God appointed that word for scorching is the same word that is used to describe Jonah's anger in verses 1 and 4. 
Here's what I think is happening. God, in love and compassion for Jonah, even in the very middle of his anger and sinful rebellion, is patiently showing him a better way. After Nineveh repents, Jonah goes out to a hillside to sit and watch what will happen. It is his silent protest against God's relenting of sending disaster there. And because there were apparently no trees for shade or shelter outside the city of Nineveh, he built himself a booth to sit in. He's going to sit and watch, fuming over the way things have gone. But God still has not abandoned Jonah. First, he appoints a plant to grow up in a day to provide better shade than the shoddy booth that Jonah had been able to build for himself. And Jonah is glad about the vine, of course. In fact, the passage says he's exceedingly glad. It balances the exceedingly uh, strong anger that he felt at the beginning of the chapter. He's exceedingly glad that this vine has grown up to give him some shade. But the next day, God appoints a worm to chew the vine, and it dies. And Jonah is exposed, and then God sends that scorching east wind, or angry east wind. And now, for the second time in this chapter, Jonah is asking to die. He was so distressed over Nineveh, he wanted to die. And now he is so distressed over the vine that he wants to die. And he says in verse 8, it is better for me to die than to live. The world would be better, my life, my existence would be better if it just was snuffed out. Jonah thinks that the world as God has ruled it, the way that God has ruled it, makes it no place that he wants to be. And I think if we're honest, we can relate to his anger. We judge God's sovereign movements in our lives by how well we like the results, just like Jonah did. When the vine grew and gave him shade, he was glad. He was happy with God's providence when it met with his expectations and desires. When God provides us with comforts and happy circumstances, we are happy with his providence. But when it withered, he accused God of wrongdoing. Things didn't go the way that he wanted them to, the way that he considered to be right and good. And so he doubted whether God himself was right and good. And he asks, God asks him again, do you do well to be angry? I am astounded by the patience of God in this passage. Jonah is stamping his feet, he's throwing a tantrum, and God is patient with him. My son James is almost two years old, and he is learning the art of the tantrum. When he gets mad, stamps his feet, and he furrows his brow, and he yells, it's easy for us to not lose our heads over it, because he's just a kid. He's acting like a two-year-old. I don't like it, but I know that he's just a toddler. But when a grown man throws a tantrum like a toddler, it's a lot harder to be patient. God is merciful toward Jonah here in his patience. Rather than scoffing at him or saying, get over it, or something worse, he explains in this book's final verses, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. He says, look at how much you loved that plant, even though you only knew it for a day and you did nothing to make it grow. Now, imagine that it's something more significant than a plant, Jonah. Should I not pity the city of Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left 
and also much cattle. God goes to great lengths here with endless patience toward Jonah to show him his folly, to show him that God's compassion for the Ninevites is good, and to illustrate that with the same that it is the same compassion that God has that has moved God to be patient with Jonah himself. Jonah was right in this chapter to describe God's love as steadfast. It is unbreakable. It's why he first called Jonah. It is why he pursued him in his rebellion. It is why he is patient with him in his stubbornness. And it is why he refuses to let Jonah go. His love for Jonah is amazing. The story of Jonah's life and the way things have unfolded here in Jonah chapter 4 reminds me of Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. In fact, I think the parable of the prodigal son helps us understand the whole book of Jonah more clearly. In that story, the younger of two sons demands his inheritance from his father, and then he goes and lives a wild life. And while living that wild life, he squanders that inheritance, and he has to take a demeaning job just to survive. And then one day he comes to his senses and he decides to go home. But the father, who had been scorned at the beginning of the story, looks and sees his rebellious son coming home, walking down the road, and this father ran to meet him and welcomed him home with a huge party. It's a wonderful story, of course, that illustrates the joy in God's heart when rebels come home and repent. But the story isn't over. The whole time that younger brother was off partying and living his crazy life, his older brother was at home, working diligently for their father. So when he sees his younger brother back home, welcomed with a party and great joy, he is bitter and resentful because the situation isn't fair. He never got a party. He was never celebrated for staying home and being a good and dutiful son. But their father explains, we must celebrate. For this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now is found. Nineveh was lost and dead in its sin. God's wrath was slated to arrive 40 days after Jonah did. But like the rebellious younger brother in Jesus' parable, the city awoke to its need for mercy, and God was pleased to give it. Just like the older brother in that story, Jonah was resentful about it. So like the father in the story, God patiently explains that he cares about these people, that it is a thing to celebrate that they have turned from evil and that they will live. There are 120,000 younger brothers in this city who have come to their senses and come home. But to Jonah, it just looks like injustice. The book ends without an answer to God's question. I'm inclined to believe that Jonah's heart was softened in time. I think that mainly because there's good evidence that Jonah wrote this book himself, or at the very least relayed these events to a scribe who recorded them. And that's an important detail for us because Jonah does not portray himself charitably in this book. At every turn, he is disobedient and insolent and bitter and spiteful. He does not depict himself sympathetically. So the fact that he preserved those aspects of his character in this book suggests that a day came when he realized his mistake. He looks back on his life at this time in his life, and he's honest about his shameful behavior, and he hopes that others will learn from his mistakes. God's patience with sinners is amazing. It waits 
It waits for that awakening that he draws out of us. His willingness to be long-suffering toward those like Jonah and the angry older brother in Jesus' parable is not just a mark, though, of his resilience, but his love. He is the God who abounds in steadfast love, even toward rebels like Jonah and the lost like the city of Nineveh. And he doesn't just endure Jonah's criticism. He doesn't just weather the accusations. He patiently shows him a better way. He brings him out of the pit of rebellion and sin. But my hunch about Jonah, coming to his senses later in life, is just a hunch. The book deliberately avoids answering that question. It cuts off, leaving us to wonder how Jonah would have answered. And I think that the reason is that this book is supposed to function like a mirror for everyone who reads it. A chance to consider for ourselves how we would answer the question if we were in Jonah's shoes. When he asks, do you do right to be angry? Should I not pity this great city? We may think, of course I would do better than Jonah. Who wouldn't be glad to see a city of 120,000 people spared? But of course, it isn't that simple. Because God's grace defies our expectations. If we roll our eyes at Jonah's stubbornness and his bitterness in this book, we probably need a little context. Of course, Jonah lived during a violent and tumultuous period of human history, so most people living in the ancient Near East were used to seeing nations fight for supremacy and territory for resources and to capture one another as slaves or conscripted soldiers. Years at this point in time were marked by significant battles, occupations or fights for freedom, and preparation for the next fight, which was always just around the corner. It was a violent time. Yet even in that world, Nineveh stood out. Among a world full of aggressors and conquerors, Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire at large was a cut above. They were famous for their tactics and notoriously violent. That is surely part of the reason why the king of that city in chapter 3 called the people of the city of Nineveh to turn from their evil and the violence that is in their hands. He calls them to repent specifically of their violence. So the people of Israel and many other nations longed for the day. They, They longed with eager expectation that the day would come when Nineveh would fall. They looked for it with the same eager expectation that we do when we see a wicked oppressor afflicting people. Like the characters in our favorite stories who look for the day when the villain will meet justice, we sympathize with Jonah. And his story compels us to ask ourselves, who would we dread to see shown mercy? Who are the people that we want to see destroyed the way that Jonah wanted to see Nineveh destroyed? Who are the people that we shudder to think might be shown even a thimble of mercy and forgiveness? And who we might stand shoulder to shoulder with in eternity, praising God who has extended his hand to each of us the same. Perhaps that sounds ridiculous to you. What sort of person would think that way? What sort of Christian would think that way? Surely we don't think of anyone or anybody, any city, any people group with the sort of disdain that Jonah thinks about the city of Nineveh. But I think that this book is in the Bible precisely because each of us are more like Jonah than we realize. And as we read it, God is doing his patient and gracious work in us, bringing that hidden sin to light so that we can reach the point that we depend more deeply 
than we ever did before on His merciful love for us. Here's what I mean by that. Several years ago, 10 years ago, I attended a conference. Uh, And at this conference, there was a big push to address the problem of modern-day slavery. It's a tragic and often unknown fact that there are almost 30 million people living, living in slavery today around the world and right here in the United States. And most of them are young girls who have been trafficked into it. At this conference, we heard from all kinds of organizations whose mission it is to end this awful situation. They work to get women out of slavery, to open rehabilitation centers for women to deal with the trauma of their years as slaves. Some of them work in legal systems in countries all around the world to make it harder to buy and sell children. At that conference, we raised money for these organizations, and we prayed for their work, and we prayed for the people who they are working to set free who are trapped in slavery. But we never said a single prayer for any of the traffickers, because there's literally, literally nothing more heinous or more wicked that a person can do than what they do every day. They are our Nineveh. And if God were to spare them his judgment, we would feel like Jonah did when Nineveh was left standing at the end of the day. There are people in our lives and in the world today who we do not want to see in heaven. But the book of Jonah confronts us with the fact that God's grace is for sinners. Sinners like those in Nineveh. Sinners like Jonah himself we will be tempted to draw lines around the grace of God to say that it can extend to me to cover my sin, but that some people have gone past the threshold, beyond the reach of God's glory, so far that they cannot come back. They'll never be brought back. Jonah's story reminds us that God pursues sinners with grace. He exposes hidden sin, as painful as that process is, and for our good. He deals patiently with us while we realize that we were lost before he reached out to us. And as he does, we begin to join with the Apostle Paul in proclaiming what he says in the book of 1 Timothy, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. God's grace is bigger than we realize. It reaches further than we think, and that is good because we are far worse sinners than we think we are. And as we begin to see that, it will shape our lives in radical, God-glorifying, grace-exalting ways. It transforms us. It makes us people of joy that we have been redeemed rather than people who are bitter that our enemies might be redeemed too. I was moved by a recent example of this sort of transformation. You may remember the name Rachel Den Hollander from the news a couple of years ago. She was the first woman to come forward with accusations of abuse from the USA Gymnastics team doctor, Larry Nasser. After she went public with her story, other women started coming forward too. In all, over 250 women would end up joining her, following her lead, exposing a pattern of abuse and exploitation going back decades, bringing it to light. 
Larry Nasser, who up to this point had had a sterling reputation and was respected by many people as a talented and caring doctor, suddenly found everything crumbling underneath him. He had been found out. And suddenly, no one saw him as a caring, talented doctor anymore. Now, he was a monster who had preyed on young women, using the environment of competitive gymnastics as a cover. Den Hollander came forward during a time of national reckoning about the treatment of women in our society, and so the scope of Nasser's abuse made the story a headline for months and months and months. He knew that there was no escaping what he'd done, so he pleaded guilty to some of the charges, and as a part of his plea deal, all of his accusers would be allowed to address the court and Nasser himself during the sentencing hearing. Sixty of the women chose to do that, and the very last one was Rachel Denhollander. Her victim impact statement was almost 40 minutes long, and some parts of it came as a surprise to many. She recounted the ways that she and other young women had been left unprotected, how they were betrayed by people they ought to have been able to trust, how the system had allowed such abuses to occur and had also shielded Nasser from accountability. She asked the judge to impose the maximum sentence, to stand in defense of girls that others had failed to defend. And then she turned directly to Larry Nasser himself, and she said, In our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom. You have spoken of praying for forgiveness, and so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. You have read that, if you have read that Bible you carry, you know that the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin that he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. If you have read that Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come by doing good things as if good deeds can erase what you've done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in its utter depravity and horror, without mitigation and without excuse. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you've done, the guilt will be crushing. And then she continued, that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet, because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And in that moment, the air went out of the room. Rachel Den Hollander was about to say what nobody else had dared to say. I pray, she said, that you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true, uh, true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me though I extend that to you as well. Rachel Denhollander could stand in a courtroom in front of a man who had shattered her childhood and the childhood of so many others, hoping, praying, that he would one day truly grieve over what he had done, not to crush him, but so that he would own his guilt and truly repent. It amazes me that she shared the gospel with him, imploring him to ask for God's forgiveness, hoping that a day would come when they would be together in heaven, praising the God of their salvation. But that is what the book of Jonah 
calls us to do. It confronts us with the fact that God's grace does not fit in the lines that we may want to draw around it. It calls the wicked to repentance, to wilt under the crushing weight of guilt, and to look for God's mercy alone for hope. But the point of the story isn't about God confronting Nineveh, it's about God confronting Jonah. And in it we see that our aim shouldn't be on how God will confront everyone else, but how he is confronting each of us. Jonah was right to describe him in verse 2 as a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And we remember with joy that he has met our sin and the unholiness and evil that our hearts were full of, that he has met it with wrath on the cross. His justice against the sin of his people was poured out on his son. So we can rest in the fact that he will answer all the evil in the world that seems right now to go unchecked. Paul writes in Romans 8, Now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but for those who deny him, condemnation remains. God will be just. No sin goes unanswered, either by the blood of Christ or the judgment of those who reject him. No injustice goes ignored. It is either covered by Christ or will be met with God's wrath. Jonah feared that his enemies were getting off scot-free, that there would be no answer for their crimes and their violence. But Scripture leaves no room for that fear, because God is just. He is a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster, and now resting in the knowledge that he has pursued us when we were far from him. He has brought hidden sin to light that he has dealt patiently with us when we scorn him, and that he has answered the injustice and the wickedness living in our own hearts at the cross. We are set free to be able to live joyfully as those redeemed and sent into the world to share that good news with our neighbors and our Ninevehs. So we come to him with hope for his compassion, honest about our sin, grateful for his patience, and praising him that his grace has extended to us the foremost of sinners in need of mercy. Would you pray with me this morning? God, in your merciful way, open our eyes this morning to the devastating reality of our own sinful condition, either for the very first time or as an even deeper understanding, so that we will turn toward you. Help us to see that we need you more than we realized yesterday because we are bigger sinners than we saw that we were yesterday. And cause us, Lord, to rejoice for seeing that your grace is bigger than we thought we needed yesterday. This week, as we celebrate Thanksgiving, cause us to remember the gospel, the perfect life, the atoning death, and the victorious resurrection of your Son, which we receive by faith and as a work entirely of your grace. We praise you today with thankful hearts in the name of your Son. Amen.